Well, good morning. So I told them I wanted a bigger table. This is a different one because I'm always knocking stuff off. That worked out really good, didn't it? So today is a big day in the uh, McNulty family. My middle son, Travis, is getting married, this, this, well, this evening. And uh, so things are exciting. It always amazes me how God kind of works things out. I usually have my sermon series and topics planned out months and months in advance. And sometimes things get moved a little bit because, you know, special events or series takes a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. And uh, so I thought it was interesting that he's getting married this afternoon. And uh, the topic of today is just looking, talking about choosing a mate. And, uh, so, you know, in uh, the United States, typically the way that process starts is the dating ritual, Right. And so I came across a list of disastrous first dates. And I thought I'd share that with you. Hopefully, you guys have never experienced anything like these. So we'll start off with this one. He took me to a movie, and once inside, he pulled out a large popcorn bucket out of the trash to get his free refill. Uh, let's go on to the next one. The date was so bad, I gave the waiter $20 to spill iced tea on me so that I could get out of there. Pretty bad. I thought he was into fitness because I saw an ankle weight on his ankle. Turned out he was on parole and it was an ankle monitor. Well, let's see what else we got here. He told me, from your photo, I thought you were too good for me, but now that we're in person, I can see your flaws. And then he began to name them. I didn't use this one in the early service because I know they probably wouldn't understand it. I once took a girl to Starbucks because I forgot her name. So there you go. It's kind of clever. <laughs> At the end of our first date, she leaned in for a goodnight kiss and said, Don't be afraid if my tooth falls out. <laughs> he asked me, Are you one of those crazy girls that looks up criminal records of her dates? I said, No. He said, Good. He took me to the dollar movie theater, bought my ticket, and then said I could pay him back later. This next one's really bad. I was trying to flirt with my date and told her she had spilt ice cream on her chin. Turned out it was a zit. <laughs> I don't know how you recover from that one. Here's the last one. He told me we were going somewhere nice for our first date. So I really got dressed up. Turned out we went to the Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> Sad thing about it, some of y'all are like, so what's wrong with that? <laughs> so it's true that sometimes uh, first dates don't go so well. And sometimes the, the dating process doesn't go so well. But it still kind of leaves that question out there. What do you look for in a mate? And of course, in our culture, usually it starts off with the dating and then a courtship and maybe an engagement and then later after that. But in a lot of countries, even today, 
marriages are arranged. I mean, your parents arrange your marriage. In some countries, you get a say in that, and some you don't. And here's something that some studies show. Marriages that are arranged have a better success rate than the spontaneous dating process that we use. Isn't that interesting? I'm not saying we should do that. I'm just saying that I think that's very interesting. So back in ancient Near East times, in the time of Abraham, arranged marriages were the thing. So that's kind of in the cards as we pick up our story today about Abraham. And, you know, we've been kind of talking about his crazy family. And this isn't nearly so crazy. It's, it's kind of more normal. But Abraham is, you know, getting ready to, to look for a mate for his son, Isaac. And as we pick up the narrative, I want you to know that Sarah has passed away, his wife. She died at the age of 127. Typically, for that time in history, women tended to get married at the age of 15, 16, somewhere in there. So that means that, just doing the math, that her and Abraham were married 112 years. Now, some of you hear that and you go, oh, that is so romantic. And some of you hear that and go, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. But Abraham is getting old too. And he has concerns about his son Isaac. Remember I mentioned to you last week that young men typically got married before they were 20 years old. And we left Isaac last week. He was three years old. But now he's 40. So he in his culture was well past what should have been his bachelor years. I mean he was still a bachelor. And you know sometimes when, when somebody close to you passes away it kind of causes you to think a lot about life and maybe the finality of life too. And I think that it probably was going on a little bit with Abraham since Sarah had passed away. And so he was, he was thinking about, i got to get Isaac married before I'm gone too. And he understood the importance of, of having the right person for her. But there's a big problem. You know what it is? Abraham is very wealthy. But he lives in a lousy neighborhood. The Canaanites, that's where he lives. And they're all into adultery and things like that. And he doesn't want his son Isaac marrying into that, that Canaanite melting pot. He doesn't want that for his son. And uh, then another part of this is um, he also doesn't want him to marry somebody local because in that time and you know you've, you've seen this throughout history how sometimes um, marriages would be arranged for political reasons and those kinds of things you probably remember from your history how in this that's in Spain and Europe and France and Germany they would take the princes and princesses and marry them to each other to create political alliances so he doesn't want that either with the Canaanites and he, and he certainly doesn't want them to Isaac to marry somebody that's practicing idolatry and he doesn't want to marry somebody locally because he doesn't want to be beholden to them at all one of those alliance kind of things like oh no I've got in-laws now and I have to be careful about what happens because he's building a new nation a new culture a distinctive culture and so he doesn't want any part of that and so he, he's trying to figure out what am I going to do here so in, to accomplish this all-important task of finding Isaac a wife, he decides to bring in one of his most trusted employees. Genesis chapter 15 tells us that this guy's name is Eleazar. And in this passage we're going to read, his name's not given, but we know that's who it is. And so we start in verse 1 and 2, and it says this. 
Abraham was now very old and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. So we learn a couple things about this senior servant. He would, his name's Eleazar, we know that from Genesis 15, and he is like chief of staff. He's like in charge of everything, it tells us. Like all of his finances, Eleazar would have been in charge of that. He would have taken care of all the kind of administrative type responsibilities of, of, of uh, Abraham's business. And then also, most likely, he was Abraham's closest friend and had been that for many years. And then there's another phrase on the screen that might get your attention because it sure has got mine. Put your hand under my thigh. That seems a little weird, doesn't it? And so what is the significance of that? Well, it's a euphemism for human reproduction. And what Abraham is saying is, Eleazar, if you don't follow through on this vow, my offspring are going to get you. So I don't know, like maybe the very earliest forms of the the Hebrew mafia. Eleazar, you betray me and my son will make you pay. (laughs) Something like that. That's what's going on. So he calls his chief of staff in. We know a little bit about him. He gives him this assignment. It's an assignment he doesn't trust with anybody else. And this is what he says in verses 3 and 4. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. But I will go to my country and my relatives to get a wife for my son Isaac. And so he gives them two very specific instructions. I want you to get a bride for Isaac. And then number two, that bride needs to come from my country. Well, Abraham's country was 500 miles away. So that's going to present some logistical challenges that we'll talk about in just a minute. But here's something that Abraham understood. It is a tragic mistake when a believer marries an unbeliever. I know people today that could stand up here and give testimony to that. Years ago, maybe in a rush of emotions, they walked down an aisle with somebody and said, I do, and they shouldn't have. And now they are joined together in this unequal yoke, and it's just been nothing but pain and heartache. I know lots of people in this room are married, and there are a great number of people in this room that are not married. Hear me on this. Marrying or dating a person who isn't a strong Christian is a recipe for disaster. I don't care how beautiful they are. I don't care how cute he is. I don't care what kind of connection you have. It is a recipe for disaster. Your faith is going to clash with them. Your values are going to clash with them. Let me offer you an alternative. Trust God that he will bring the right person to you. So back to our text. Abraham wants to find a godly woman for Abraham. He's given the assignment to Eleazar. And I don't know about you, but this sounds like a pretty tough ass to me. I mean, you've got to find your boss's son, a wife, so you've got to make your boss happy. And you also 
you know, to some degree, you kind of need to make his son happy also. And Abraham is very wealthy at this point, and Isaac's going to inherit all this, and I'm sure Isaac has been taught the family business. This is a big ask for this guy who's basically been a bean counter, a friend, and an administrative assistant. So the other part that I mentioned to you a while ago is the monumental challenge of it being 500 miles away. So you've got to give Eleazar credit. He's beginning to think of some very logical questions like you and I would. And one of the biggest questions has to do with the distance. And so he says in verse 5, the servant asked, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Well, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? She lives 500 miles away, and you want her to just move down here to this son of yours that she's never seen. Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? This sounds pretty reasonable. Hey, boss, what if she doesn't want to come with me? All right, fair, fair question. Doesn't want to come with a complete stranger to marry a man she's never met 500 miles away. Oh, by the way, Abraham, do you think her dad's going to let her do this? I mean, you know those kind of questions are popping up. Now, this question had to strike a nerve with Abraham. Because listen to his response in verse 6. Make sure that you do not take my son back there. And in the Hebrew, you get even a, a, a different kind of feel of how strong his reaction is. Eleazar, watch yourself. Don't you dare thinking, think about taking my son up there. Period. It's a pretty strong response. Under no circumstances is Isaac to leave home. And then it continues, Abraham also reassured his servant, and he continues in verse 7. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. So basically what Abraham says to him, the reason that she might come back with you is because this is part of God's plan. God has a plan here. Now you notice that Abraham's plan is for finding a mate is a lot different from, say, a lot of cultures back then or even today, the way a lot of people do it. Often back then, it was about status, it was about finances. If you were a poorer person and you had very beautiful daughters, a lot of times you could marry up the economic and social ladder by letting your girls marry kind of up that way and increase your value and your ranking in the uh, social pecking order. And of course, today, motives are not always pure either. Motivation still sometimes arrive. Ar center around finances and status and things like that. Unfortunately, I think the question that is not always asked in today's culture is God's choice for me. A lot of young people are dating and marrying without ever giving thought to, is this what God wants? That's a question you need to be asking. Again, it's not just about looks and appearance or even good personality. Is this what God wants? So Abraham kind of goes back to his servant and he gives him a way out in verse 8 in case this lady doesn't want to come back. Verse 8, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son there. So if she don't want to come back, it's okay. You're released. And as we kind of dive into the meat of this narrative this morning, I want you to notice Six guidelines. They're not the only guidelines, 
But there's six guidelines that every person should have for choosing a mate. And I think they're great biblical principles. Parents, you might want to write these down. If you're single in here, most of you will probably get married at some point. Write these down. They're great principles and they're straight straight from Scripture. The first one is this. Listen to godly parents. Listen to the advice of godly parents. Not all parents are godly, and not all godly parents are right. Nevertheless, your chance of choosing the right person to marry increases when your parents walk with God and seek His counsel. Realize that your parents know you better than you know you, and they want the absolute best for you. And they can also help you judge your motives Your parents can have a a healthy objectivity that sometimes we don't have when we're dating and single. You know, we get that in love, subjectivity, and we're not always able to see things objectively. Pay attention to that sixth sense that your parents have about people. If your mom and dad are just like, no, 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 you need to really listen. I'm not saying they're always right. But you need to take their counsel seriously. I have counseled. I couldn't tell you how many premarital counseling sessions that I've had with couples. Usually it lasts six or eight weeks. We cover about 13 different things. And um, I have rarely seen parents get it wrong when they're godly people who have pure motives for their kids. Abraham understood that. He wanted the best. Listen to the advice of godly parents. So Abraham, we pick up the story again. Abraham's servant, he didn't waste any time. We're told in verse 10, he loads up the donkeys and he heads north on that 500-mile trip. He takes off, we're told in Scripture, with 10 camels. Now, you know, we think about camels in the Middle East today, and I think a lot of times we think, oh, they're like cattle over there. But back in ancient times, domesticated camels were very rare. And they were very expensive because they were the ideal animal to travel across the desert with. So they were very expensive. And somebody that had 10 camels that would come into town in a caravan, everybody would notice that because it meant this person was very wealthy. So any town that he would have came into, everybody would have noticed, oh, 10 camels. I mean, it'd be like if you and I were on our way home today and a 10-car limousine presidential motorcade went by. I'd be like, we would all notice that, right? And we'd all be like calling our friends, hey, and taking pictures. Well, that's how this would have been. When he shows up with these 10 camels, this, this, this caravan, people are going to notice and so we're told that he, pull, he comes into this city, the, the city of Nahor, which is the city that's 500 miles north where Abraham's from. And he strategically positions himself where he could observe the attractive and eligible women of the city. We're told in verse 11, he had the camels kneel down near the well outside of town. It was toward evening, the time when the women would go out to draw water. So he knows where these pretty women are going to show up at, where these eligible women were going to be. It reminds me of a line in a Tom Cruise movie, Top Gun. And uh, recently, one of our dads was dropping his son off at college, and his son was obviously noticing the attractive co-eds there. 
And this dad said to his son, same line from the Tom Cruise movie, son, this is a target-rich environment. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. He has gone to the target-rich environment. But I want you to notice what he does first. It's the second point. Saturate the process with prayer. Before he does anything else, he prays. He doesn't have a Miss Nahor city of beauty pageant. He doesn't start taking notes. He's not scoring them in different categories like, you know, how well they're dressed or how they carry themselves, their posture, or how well they carry those pots of water. He didn't do that. Before he does anything else, he says, God, show me the choice. Look in verse 14. He's asking for God's leading. May it be that when I say to the young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. So he says, when I ask her for a drink, not only do I want her to give me a drink, I also want her to ask, I'm not going to ask, but I want her to say that she'll water my camels too. All right, let's, let's talk about a couple things here. First of all, let's talk about the whole idea of laying out a fleece, which that's what he's doing. If she says, can I water your camels, then I'll know she's the one. I don't think God works like that anymore. We have the Holy Spirit now. Back in the Old Testament, they didn't have scriptures. They didn't have the Holy Spirit, so they came up with these different things. Uh, setting out a fleece today, I think, can really get you in trouble. Well, if she sews up for this date and she has some kind of shirt with pink in it and a gold necklace, then I know she's the one for me to marry. Wrong, bad idea, don't do that. You know, you can kind of make fleeces, do anything you want. I mean, chances are really good that if you're dating, a lady might show up with some pink in her shirt and a gold necklace. I mean, we can create things if we want it bad enough, she's pretty enough or whatever. That part, don't do. But why the, the camels and the water? Is this just kind of some kind of random something he came up with? Well, he's looking for someone to give him a drink. And almost anybody in ancient times would give a stranger a drink. But what he was looking for is someone with uncommon hospitality. Drawing water and carrying water was hard work. So these ladies are having to come out, get water, carry it back home. That was kind of their job. That would be a tiring job all by itself. And it would be a little bit of an inconvenience for her to give a stranger a drink, but not that big of a deal. But when you start talking about the camels, that's a much bigger ask. That's a horse of a different color. Here's why. Scientists tell us that a camel can drink about 50 gallons, a thirsty camel can drink about 50 gallons of water in three minutes. Now they have come across the desert. I'd say there's a pretty good chance they're thirsty. Most of those containers that these ladies would carry back then, probably give or take a little bit, clay container would hold five gallons of water. So, ten camels... 50 gallons of water, you do the math, that's 500 gallons of water going to have to haul. So, five gallons at a time, somebody do the math for me. How many trips is that? 
a hundred trips. A hundred trips to water his camels. Not only is it backbreaking work, but if it just took a minute per trip, it's going to take pretty close to two hours. So that's what he's thinking. I'm just kind of spitballing here a little bit. But I'm thinking a lot of women aren't going to do this. They're, they're not doing this to haul all this extra water. So this person would be pretty extraordinary if they did this. I know some of you ladies are thinking this morning, I'm glad they don't do that now because I'd just be single the rest of my life. <laughs> I ain't hauling no 500 gallons of water for anybody. So that's, that's why he was doing this. He realized this was an excellent test to discover that she might be special, that she may make a good wife, that she could be the mother of a great nation, that she'd be kind and courteous and, and hospitable and generous and gracious and industrious. We learn all of that from this. So it just wasn't arbitrary. It's a test that fit the moment. Verses 15, and seven, verses 15 through 17 tell us this. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. Then it continues later. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. So what is Rebecca's response going to be? We see it in verse 18. She gave him a drink. And then in verse 19, we read this. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she just volunteers. He didn't ask her. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well, and drew more water and drew enough for all of his camels. So Eleazar, he's watching. She said she would do it. Will she do it? Two hours of backbreaking work. And the longer she worked, the more convinced he was that he had found a rare gem. Rebecca's response brings us to the third guideline. Look for traits that reveal true character. By true character, I mean those inner qualities that set someone apart from ordinary people. He's not just polite with people he's trying to impress. He's polite with the waiter that he's never going to see again. She is not only gracious and generous with people she knows. She is generous with people that can't possibly repay her kindness. It's that kind of idea. So she does complete the job. And when she gets finished, he gives her 10 shekels of gold jewelry. Three pieces that was worth 10 shekels of gold. And just to give you a, a little bit of context, what a big tip this was. The average wage for a year was 10 shekels back then. For a year. And so he gives her the equivalent of that. I mean, this would be like maybe kind of sort of like the bellhop takes your, your luggage to your motel, your hotel room, and you give them a gold Rolex. I mean, that's the kind of tip that we're talking about here. And then he asked her a question. Does you, do you and your family have a place that I might could spend the night? And then she says, of course we do. And we have a place to feed and water your camels. And this is another good sign. 
It means that she comes from a hospitable family. She doesn't have to say, well, let me run home and ask my family first. She already knows what they're going to say. She knows it's a, it's a done deal. Of course they would welcome a stranger. Of course they would offer to feed his ten hungry camels. And so her physical beauty matches her inner beauty, so to speak, her, her character. She's unselfish and thoughtful and courteous and diligent and industrious. And that brings us to our fourth principle today. Proceed cautiously, think deeply. You see, by this time, Eleazar's kind of coming to the conclusion, she's a keeper. But I think in our modern society, a lot of times people omit this. You know, anybody can make a good impression on a first date. Well, anybody but those people I talked about earlier today. But <laughs> most people can make a pretty, pretty good impression on the first date. A lot of people can make a first impression for a lot of months. But when you start talking about getting married, you know, what, what are they going to be like if you get really sick? What's going to happen if the bottom falls out of your, your finances? How are they going to react then? See, the servant watched her closely, Rebecca. He noticed details that can't be faked. And when you're thinking about marrying somebody, be sensitive to the details. Have the courage to question things that they just don't add up. The, the clues are there. Notice what the other person is like under pressure. How does she, he or she handle conflict? What kind of relationship does that person have with their family? And so the servant thanks God for uh, his success with Rebecca. Rebecca runs home to tell her family about the encounter. And so her brother comes out to the spring. His name is Laban. And I love what he says. He says, Come, you are blessed, my Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I love that phrase. Like, dude, we said you could come on. My sister told you. Why are you still sitting down here? Let's go. It's okay. I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought to the camels. And water for him and the men to wash their feet. This is important. Number five, a person's family matters. I tell people this all the time. When you get married, you are marrying a family. Even if you live 10 states away, that person's, your spouse's family, they carry that inside of them. It's, it's always there. Don't kid yourself and say things like, wow, that is one messed up family, but my, my fiance, they're the exception. It doesn't usually work that way. I have seen very healthy individuals come from, 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 from poor family situations, but it's rare. And I'm not telling you to call it off right away. I'm just telling you when that red engine light is flashing, blink, 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 blink. Don't ignore it. Pay attention and ask the questions. And I know sometimes you ask all the right questions and things still don't work well, but, but when that light is flashing, pay attention on the road to the altar. Last one is this. Determine if there is mutual interest in spiritual things. So they sat down to eat. 
that evening, the family and Eleazar. And he just basically says, hey, let me tell you why I'm here. I didn't just happen to wander into the town. I have a reason for being here. And then he tells them. He tells them about how God has led him to Nahor. He tells them how rich Abraham is and Isaac is going to inherit all of this. He repeats Abraham's instructions about Isaac's wife. And we're not reading all this because Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. It would just take us too long, so I'm kind of summarizing. He reveals the prayer that he prayed at the well and how God seemed to answer that with Rebecca. And then in verse 49, here's the clincher. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me so I may know which way to turn. So he's already asked, can can Rebecca marry Isaac? And so now, like any good salesman, he's, he's kind of pushing for an answer, for a decision. And Labian and Bethuel realize that this is from God. And remember, their culture is a lot different than our culture. And they consent for Rebecca to go. And this leads me to another critical observation. When God is leading your life, and this is not just about marriage. When God is leading your life, other people will recognize it. They will see it, they will believe it, and they will support you in what you are doing. People will see that in your life. We continue. So now there's this kind of touchy question. When does she leave? The family wants to wait 10 days. Kind of spend some time with her. Probably get her all situated to go. But in verse 55 we read. This is the family talking first. Let the girl remain with us 10 days or so. And then you may go. But he said to them. This is the servant. Do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so I may go back to my master. So there's this issue. When does she leave? And then they say, I tell you what. Let's ask Rebecca. That's kind of nice, right? Like finally let her say something. Since she's the one involved in all this. So they go and they get Rebecca and they ask her. Now think about the implications of this question for Rebecca. The implications, will you go with this guy? Not will you go with, this, with Isaac, Isaac's not there. Will you go with the servant? Most likely this means leaving her family permanently. She'll probably never return home. She only met this servant 12, 15 hours ago, that evening and the time they had that morning. So the basis of one evening and one morning, she has been asked to make a decision that's going to cut her off from her family the rest of her life. She's going to go across the desert to a place she's never seen and marry a man that she's never met. Rebecca, will you go with this guy? No, right? Isn't that what everybody's screaming in here? No. It's like weird. You don't do stuff like that. And what's her dad saying? Dads? No, 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 no. But it's a different culture. Different time in history. We'd be absolutely not. But of course, God was leading in this story, and she says yes. So she leaves, and she makes that long 500-mile journey back to Negev. Scripture tells us that when she arrives, Isaac's out in the field, and as soon as she sees him from a distance, she pulls her veil over the face, because in those times, 
you never saw what your life, wife looked like till the honeymoon started. So Isaac has no idea what she looks like. But everybody's excited and kind of is the custom of the time. There's probably a little bit of a, a time when they kind of get to know each other, maybe a week probably. And in the meantime, Abraham and everybody is preparing this lavish celebration. And then that day would come. And unlike our time, there weren't vows said. There was no minister there, no political official to, to give out vows and stuff. It was just kind of understood by the fact that you'd agreed to marry this person that, that you were going to follow through, uh, you know, and, and be the kind of husband and the kind of wife that uh, was implied by being married. So then the day would come, and we're told that that day came, and the big celebration happened, and then sometime in the evening, uh, this new couple would retreat to their tent, and uh, that's kind of how the story kind of wraps up at the end of Genesis chapter 24. And if you like a great love story, this is a great love story. Mention six things that had to do with choosing a mate. I want to add three other things that are in this story that don't have to do with the person that you might think you're going to marry. They have to do with you in the meantime. And they're also found in this passage. Number one, the best way to prepare for marriage is to be the best person you can be right now. In Rebecca's life, she was kind, she was industrious, she was godly, she was resourceful, she was pure, she was decisive. Cultivate qualities in your life that make you a better person because they will also make you a better marriage partner. Secondly, if you are interested in being married, focus less on the future marriage and more on the present faithfulness. What was Rebecca doing when the servant found her? She's doing her job. She was doing chores. She was just doing what was expected of her. She wasn't out there complaining, Oh, this job is so hot. I'm so tired of carrying this water. It was my brother's turn to do this today. Why didn't he do it? No. She's just being faithful to what she was asked to do. She wasn't out there thinking, You know, tonight I might hear about the man of my dreams. She was just focused on present faithfulness. That's a great principle. Focus on doing what God wants you to do right at the present. And the last one is this. If God wants you to be married, he will bring the right person into your life at the right time. That means you don't have to to worry about it. It's been my observation through the years that people that fall in love with the idea of getting married it usually doesn't turn out well. Wait for the right person at the right time, and God will take care of that. Then I want to close with this. In February of 2011, the world's longest marriage came to an end. It's still the longest marriage. 86 years after Herbert Fisher said, I do, he passed away. It was 1924, and Calvin Coolidge was president. Herbert was a, Herbert was a mechanic for the Coca-Cola Bottling Company. He ma- married Zelmira. They built, he built their family home in 1942. They had five children. All five children went to college. They survived. Their marriage survived the Great Depression when Herbert earned five cents a day. 
They raised their kids through ration supplies during World War II, lived through the Korean War, the Vietnam War, saw Afghanistan twice, Iraq, I mean, Af Iraq twice and Afghanistan once. They lived through 15 presidents. They saw all kinds of things invented during their lifetime. They witnessed the Civil Rights Movement, which is a black, as a black couple living in James City, North Carolina. That was a pretty big deal. And when Herbert died, they had been married longer than most people live. In 2010, about a year before Herbert died, he and Zelmyra were doing a Valentine's Day interview. And they asked them, what was the key or the secret to a happy marriage? Zelmyra scorned the idea that there was any secret. And this is what she said. There isn't any secret. It's only God that kept us together. That's great advice for all of us. Make sure that God is the center of your marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Father, we thank you for relationships. And Father, we especially thank you for those relationships that lead to marriage. And Father, these principles, they're not all the principles that are out there, but Father, obviously some very good principles. And Father, we thank you for putting those in Scripture for us. And Father, I just pray for everybody that's married here today. I pray that you help us to be the types of husbands and wives that we need to be. Sometimes when we're married for a long time, we start taking things for granted. Father, I just pray maybe today is a good reminder of some of the things that are important. Father, so many folks in this room that aren't married, a lot of them one day will be. And I pray for them that you'll give them a godly mate. And Father, I pray that they'll wait on you and seek your face about that. Father, I pray that they realize even the people they date are always potential marriage partners. They need to be careful. Father, I pray for everybody in here that's married and is going to get married one day that give everybody a lifetime of happiness. Help our marriages to be centered on you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.